Hello and welcome to today's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today's episode is called The Great Insolvency Facade. Today we're joined by Caroline DeRusso. Caroline's a lawyer with 15 years of experience in commercial litigation and corporate insolvency. She's also a regular contributor to Sky News and has her own company and brand called The Daily Lux. Caroline, welcome. Hi guys, nice to be back. It's a pleasure to have you on the show again. It has been a couple of years. I think I think we're getting a bit of a. It has been, but at least we've got plenty to um to look back on that. Basically. Yeah, I mean, last time it was just audio. Uh, we're we are in the modern era. We've got video and audio, but it sounds like we've got a bit of a lag. So we'll just uh, do our best to work with that. Uh, as always, we have Damien Klassen, who's Nucleus Wealth's co-founder and chief investment officer. Damo, welcome. Thanks, Sam. My name's Sam Kerr, and I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. On the agenda today, we'll explore whether insolvency levels are artificially lower after the huge financial stimulus from COVID, or whether this is the new normal. We'll look at business insolvency, construction insolvency in particular, and personal insolvency levels. Then we'll talk about the luxury, good market, uh, luxury goods market, and as always, at the end, we'll discuss the investment implications. Just a quick quick housekeeping reminder, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or have a new episode recorded. We are live every Thursday at 12.30 Sydney Melbourne time. So just on, jump onto the Nucleus Wealth YouTube channel and you can ask any questions that come to mind and we'll do the best to answer them during the show. You can also follow us on your preferred podcast platform as our show is available on all the majors. And if you'd like to look at the slides in more detail, we'll post them in the show notes this afternoon, and you can view those at nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinars. So now we've got that housekeeping out of the way, Damo, I'll pass it over to you to give us a bit of context and get the ball rolling. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So um, look, we're, we're uh, great to have you back, Caroline. And uh, given that there's, there is a little bit of a lag, we might, I might sort of... Uh, Ask you a few questions and let you monologue for a little bit before um, before sort of coming coming back. Um, what I thought I'd do just first is uh, set the scene for I guess the number what I'm seeing in, in the in the business insolvencies because there's a few weird things going on and then maybe after that we can sort of talk through um, uh, talk through what what's what that is. And so I'll start with um, just a, a, a graph of sort of. I've got like the the one month business insolvencies, the three month average, and then a twelve month average. And um, just because business insolvencies are a bit weird, um, and, and they go, they sort of, they January levels are quite low, and then and then February levels are really high, and so it's sort of like a, a joining of the two almost uh, every, every year. And so you can see from the 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 the. Well, for anyone listening on the podcast, there's a there's a pink line which is sort of this this running twelve month average. It sort of ran at about um, you know seven hundred and fifty per month ish. Um, for, for most of uh, up to the 2020, and then a, a big drop down to you know, less than half that, and and we seem to be making our way back up. Um, having said that, you know there's some you know the, the most recent data seems to be turning down a bit, and so I've got another graph that sort of shows it month by month and and breaks it up by by uh, the total. Uh, so, so for each year, so each each year is a line on this graph, and and the really dark one is um, is the the 2022 years, and then um, all the other lines are uh, prior years. 
And so what we can see from that is that uh, the most recent one, um, construction is running really hot. So, so you know, much higher levels than it has at any stage um, in, in recent ones up until August. But then after it seemed to have died pretty quickly for for uh, you know, September and, and October, which is still October is still preliminary data, but um, it, it's it's had a big drop off, and so um, it's gone from running well above to 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 potentially coming back to to, to within normal range. Uh, the total is is certainly you know much much higher than we had for the last two years, but it's at the bottom end of the range we've seen over the last over, over the last ten years, and so um, and and fading down as well and so it's it, there's some just some some weird things going on we spoke last week to some um uh some of the guys in the property industry the uh and they were talking about uh, the ato getting a lot more active um but that that was only in its early stages and that sort of wouldn't you know, you'd expect that data to be coming through you know maybe over the next six months rather than sort of uh having already hit uh, and then we've also and spoke, spoke as well about some of the laws of change. And the only other thing I wanted to, to put in context as well, so that was business insolvencies. I've got another chart just showing personal insolvencies and how that's over you know, a similar time frame and that's just um, you're still at, at very low levels. So that, we've only got up to June data there, so that, 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 that's not as up-to-date. But um, again, personal insolvencies are um, no sign of, of recovering. So anyway, with, with that in mind, I might throw over to you, Caroline, and, and get your thoughts on, on insolvencies and, and what you're seeing and hearing. Sure. So you remember, um, I think the last time we had a chat, we still had the temporary insolvency measures in place and that they made it a lot more difficult um, for, well, it it, it provided protection, I suppose, for for companies during uh, during the pandemic. So the thresholds to issue a statutory demand were a lot higher. We really saw uh, business insolvencies drop right off, and I guess the the entire industry at that time thought that when those measures came off, um, that there would be a spike in insolvencies, and the whole, we were all just kind of waiting to see what happened, and that spike in insolvencies never actually happened when those temporary measures came off. And now looking back on it, I think there is a few things um, which which allowed that to stay um, I guess, subdued for such a long time. I think the first thing is uh, that credit was still really cheap, business credit was really cheap. And so you weren't, um, you, you had debt funding, you had businesses borrowing money, but because the uh, the cost of servicing that debt was so low, they were able to to drag it out and carry on. Um, the ATO, uh, which you know does um, wind up a lot of companies who haven't paid their tax, they weren't uh, winding up companies, and it's only just in the last couple of months that they've started to do that. Um, but I think it'll take a little while for those figures to uh, flow through. Um, and I think from the creditor side, creditors just didn't have the appetite to um, to wind up companies. Often creditors would wait for the ATO um, to to essentially foot the bill for the winding up and then they would uh, just put in a proof of debt. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of companies that were struggling for cash flow and so um, they thought, thought, well, look, if this if this creditor of mine or this debtor of mine doesn't have the money to pay, what's the point of incurring the cost in winding them up? Um, but we did see one thing that I thought was really quite interesting, and there has been some research of this um, by uh, Helen Anderson out of uh, Melbourne University, but also uh, there was an article in uh, the Arita Journal talking about the, the 
the huge increase we've seen in deregistrations. So liquidation and external administration is just one way of a uh, company essentially, you know, uh, the, the end of a company life. Um, but if you don't pay your ASIC fee, um, then the company ceases to exist after a period of time. And, and what this uh, research has shown is that in 2016, there were about 32,000 companies uh, which were deregistered, and that represented five times the number of liquidations, where in 2021, that number's gone up to 52,000 and represents 13 times the number of liquidations. Now, we do have to keep in mind that in 2021, we had less liquidations than normal, so that, that proportion isn't exactly um, perfect in, in the normal kind of circumstances, but you are seeing significantly more companies deregistered. And, and partially that is directors walking away. Um, partially that is the ATO uh, not winding up company that they may otherwise wind up. Um, and it just shows that where creditors don't have the appetite to wind that company up um, and the directors walk away, then it just it just all disappears and there's there's no reckoning um, in, in the more formal way that we, we generally talk about liquidations and other forms of external administration. Um, so I thought that that there was um, really interesting and I actually wouldn't mind tracking deregistrations over the next few years to see well, is this actually a trend or is this a COVID hangover? Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting, actually. I'll, I'll add that to my suite of um, uh, things to, to follow up on. Because that's um, and so I mean, I guess just to put it in context, if I'm owed five, ten grand by somebody, um, it's probably going to cost me that again to just to, to, to start court proceedings. I'm guessing, is that is that right? Yeah. So usually to issue something like a stat demand is is pretty cheap. Um, and, and normally that sort of thing is under the two grand mark. But if you want to actually do a winding up application, you know, you're looking, depending on what it is and how, um, and how complicated it is, I mean, you can burn 20 grand without trying too hard. So you, if you're going to take the step yourself to wind up a company, then you want to be sure that, well, one, there's a fair bit uh, of money owing, and two, that you've got some chance of recovering some of that money. If you if you think that, well, that company owes me 100 grand, but they don't have $2 to bless themselves with, well, then why would you go to all the trouble of winding them up when you're not actually going to get anything out of it in the end? And then it's 100 and 100 grand plus whatever your costs of enforcement are and it's just it's not really worth the exercise in the mm. in the long run and 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 so and as you said that it's in the past it's been the tax office who's basically on well they will chase them for for the unpaid debts um so if the tax office you know if the, if the message sort of went around to them is like okay now's time we're going to start making phone calls and start collecting again you know this financial year so let's say you know say two or three months ago they've really actually started getting stuck into it um, I'm guessing this is a relatively long process anyway before they'd get to the court. Like, are we talking six months, nine months before they'd finally the wind up, or is or is something relatively just in terms of when should we be expecting sort of a the wave of of uh, ATO wind ups to to start occurring? Uh, there will be a bit of a lag, and I did listen to your podcast last week, and I thought that there were some really valid points made there. The ATO will first try and talk to whoever the business is, will try and set up a repayment agreement. They'll try and do all those things first. So um, it will only really be in the case of um, 
you know, directors or businesses which just fail to communicate with the ATO, where you will see those enforcement proceedings occur sooner. Um, but for those who uh, try and cooperate with the ATO, you know, and it's the same with your bank. If your bank calls, pick up the phone. When a borrower goes AWOL, that's when banks start to get nervous. So if you if you keep talking um, with the people you owe money, um, then that formal enforcement um, type action will always be further down the track. Um, but I think, to be honest, it's at least um, a, at least a three to six months exercise um, once you actually see it flowing through to the figures because it takes an amount of time for just the process itself to be finalised in court before a liquidator is actually appointed. Uh, but I think, you, you know, you'll see the ATO give people a chance and but I, I'm actually thinking the next 12 to 18 months is where you're actually going to see um, not necessarily a spike but but a bit more of um, an uptick in this sort of thing once you know the ATO and businesses have tried to come to an arrangement um, but I um, there was some new insolvency data out on uh, the ASIC website just on the 21st of November, actually. So it's really nice and fresh. You know, we've obviously got the data from the previous year, but um, with the the, the uh, quick increase we've had in interest rates over the last few months, I'm not really quite sure whether um, that there uh, is, is as relevant to what's happening right now. But if you look um, at What do we have to look at? Yes. Um, okay. Well, we'll assume she come back on, but I think from the insolvency part as well, um, you know, I guess it's, the other thing's worth noting um, is, is as, as she's talking about that there's a there's a a number of uh, businesses that well, most, sorry, not number of businesses, most small businesses are backed by houses, uh, and and so the the lending process for um, for, the, for the average small business is is usually as simple as have you got a house? Okay, can you take a mortgage over it? Great. Here's your hundred grand. You know, we're backed against the house. The other thing that we need to um, be really clear about in the insolvency context is when we're talking about a company being insolvent or trading while insolvent, the relevant test is a cash flow test, not a balance sheet test. So even if you've got assets on your balance sheet, if they are not um, if they are not liquidated, um, and in other circumstances where you you literally can't pay your debts as and when they fall due, then you know that's where you start to have insolvency issues and they they are the relevant insolvency issues how much cash is coming in and how much cash is going out so um the the, the ability to liquidate assets and the types of assets that are sitting on balance sheets um that they, they are relevant to an extent but the the most uh the, the most relevant thing about them is how quickly they can be turned to cash um but uh for for a small uh, most small businesses you know, from from right, are basically lending against their own home anyway, and and we've have had some some pretty reasonable house price appreciation over over COVID, which sort of probably helped a lot of these stats as well. Um, I'm assuming that would be treated as a relatively liquid asset in terms of you know if I've paid my home down to sixty percent and I wanted to take it back up to eighty to to pay the tax department, that that would be a loan that would be relatively quick for a bank to to process. Um, it, those sorts of loans are generally relatively quick. What will be um important for the bank in, in a credit assessment sense is, well, you can take it up to 80 now, um, but but what is what is the value of that property going to be going forward? So, so house prices in WA, for example, they've come off a 
bit, but they've been relatively steady. As you guys have talked about before, you know, after the mining construction boom. Sorry, Caroline. Can can you just can, can we go back to that? We just we we lost you just at the, we just, we lost you just at the point, and I'm gonna I'm gonna run it all straight through the um straight through the phone now. Um, okay. I, I lost you just at the point where you're saying about um. So we're talking about the pandemic, and people had stopped going out and spending money at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And and because people had gone out and stopped spending money, um, they were online shopping. Principally, they were online shopping. They couldn't they couldn't do all the things that um, they usually did with their discretionary spending. Plus, they were receiving JobKeeper, and and for those people that their pay was unaffected during the pandemic, they um that they they still had that that discretionary spending. Um, so we saw a huge uptick in um in in goods demand, massive amount. Uptick uh, in goods demand, and um, and I saw it within my own business. Um, there were some weeks also I sell mainly luxury handbags, but um, I saw there were some weeks there during the early parts of the pandemic where um, you know you'd sell twenty five thirty thousand uh, worth of luxury handbags in a week, and it was just people were just sitting at home with money and nothing to do, and so they were spending it on in my case, luxury goods. Um, and we saw that across the board. We saw that um, not just with the handbags, but with the luxury uh, watches market. Um, there, there were some people who were buying new, but the, the price particularly uh, of secondhand luxury watches just went through the roof. Um, and so that there was a really interesting, um, a really interesting and I guess I suppose somewhat unexpected um, exercise that occurred. And um, that they're reflected in in a lot of the obviously the luxury goods um, groups um, that their market prices because I just don't think a lot of people expected that demand to be there. Um, the other business that I run is a luxury goods authentication platform, and so we are used by retail buyers, but we're also used by resellers who get us to check that all their stock is authentic before they sell it, and so. In, even in the last um, few months, the, the change um, has been really interesting to watch. So say, for example, um, 18 months ago, you would have certain types of handbag and even expensive um, handbags, 10 to 15,000, that they would come for sale and they'd be sold in two minutes. That became the norm. It was just unbelievable how much demand there was um, for those sorts of products all the way down to your even your lower value luxury goods that six to seven hundred um, amount. Uh, so, so there was plenty of demand there. What we're now seeing is there is still that demand for that plus ten to fifteen thousand bracket, but it's slower. Things aren't selling as quickly as they were. But that probably fifteen hundred to six hundred bracket, the bottom has totally fallen out. So mm -hmm. I think that, that there is really interesting because if people are um, are conscious of cost of living issues, if their mortgage has gone up um, or, and they're already, um, you know, saturated debt-wise or, or they're already going through their savings, they just don't have that same discretionary spend. And I know there's talk that um, there's going to be less uh, – less consumer spending up into Christmas, and I think people really have tightened their belt. The fact of the matter is, if 12 months ago you could afford without thinking to spend 15000 on a handbag, well, then probably now you can still um, 
spend 15000 on a handbag without thinking. But if you are in that bracket where um, all of a sudden things are tightened up and you're sitting in that lower end of the market, um, you're either moving again into an even lower end into that um, sub-$600 uh, market, which some people are, but they're having to, to downgrade what they really want. Um, but there's other people who have just stopped spending. And there's a big chunk of that, well, I've just stopped spending, or if I can't have what I want, I don't, I'd rather not have anything. So it's been absolutely fascinating to see um, that, that total change uh, in demand. Um, I'm not I'm not a watches person per se, but um, I've got a lot of friends who are collectors and they've, they've all said that the the watches market, the second-hand watches market, has probably come off between 15 and 20% this year. And all of a sudden, you know, on that second-hand market, you're seeing price drops on, on pieces which, you know, 12 months ago were snapped up you know, in a blink of an eye. So I think there's definitely a, a, a slowness to demand, um, but that, that higher end is holding up. And and we will see that in things, for example, premium wine. You know, that they're talking about the lower end of the wine market dropping off, but premium wine is remaining buoyant. So for those people who still have that disposable income at that higher level, they will still spend that money. Um, but where where they they may necessarily used to have to make a little bit of a sacrifice or something with a big purchase, they're now just not making that purchase. Uh, incidentally, we are seeing resellers um, put authentication orders into our company, and sometimes they've got a client who's getting rid of six to eight Chanel's that are brand new. So you're talking about sixty to eighty grand worth of stock that's never been used, and all of a sudden you're seeing this very new stock um, all coming through onto the second-hand market, which people have bought, but now maybe um, maybe they've they've maxed on their credit cards, or or um, they may have big mortgages, and, and with the with the interest rates going up, that that servicing of debt has increased substantially in an aggregate sense. And so you were also seeing those sorts of people who, who previously had spent like that now kind of pairing back and getting rid of what they got in their wardrobe and they're not really using. Yeah, that's fascinating. And um, within that market then as well, so so from talking to the companies, you know, let's, let's take watches as a good example. Uh, you know, they, they spoke about, um, you know, just problems in terms of supply chains and stuff like that and they weren't producing as many watches as they wanted to. Um, and so I'm guessing that some of that demand in the secondhand market was sort of um, was leached off the, you know, I can't buy a new watch, so I'll buy a secondhand one and bid up the price. And then, um, and now that production's starting to come on as far as I can tell. So I'm not sure whether that's, so I guess when you're saying a lot of this is falling away, do you, are you talking about the whole market or I guess are you talking more the secondhand market you think is falling away and, and maybe some of that's um, ending up in the new market and some of that's just disappearing? Yeah, well, there is definitely um, there is uh, definitely was a buoyancy in the second hand market because of um, supply issues. That mm -hmm. goes without saying. And um, I really love um, the graph that Carrie Brooker does, um, showing the inventory on second hand cars because I, I feel like that there kind of goes um, for, for the handbag market as well. And and there was a period of time where if you wanted something um, and you weren't able to get it, um, it would then um, be sourced on the second-hand market. And you could probably get it, 
new um, or very close to new, very good condition. And um, sometimes you'd be paying over retail, um, but not always. Handbags are a little bit different to watches. Watches tend to can be hugely over retail. You don't really see that so much in the, the handbag market unless you're talking about a Hermes Birkin or an Hermes Kelly. They seem to be the only two bags which really go very high over um, retail. Um, but the, the second-hand market definitely did soak up some of that demand um, because there were those supply issues. So some of that is definitely coming off. Um, but equally, uh, and I don't know what the proportion of it is yet, but, but there are certain people who um, would previously have um, bought something new which they may not now be able to afford to buy it new, but they may be able to afford to buy it secondhand. So that there could also potentially be, you know, counterbalancing, um, you know, what may be holding up some of that that secondhand market. Mm. Um, the Chinese buyers, so they're obviously still locked into into pandemic lockdowns and, and reopenings yeah. and all that type of stuff. Do you, uh, I'm assuming, you know, that the disappearance of the Chinese Tourists from from around the world has made a bit of a difference, but I don't know what your thoughts are there. Yeah, there, there definitely has been, and the, um, but I think that that there's broader across the Chinese middle class. So you'll see that with regards to luxury goods, you'll see that with regards to wine and wagyu and and all those things that the Chinese middle class got really used to. Um, obviously, before we got whacked with a whole heap of trade sanctions, um, that market has definitely um, shrunk. Uh, or not shrunk, but it's definitely dampened. And, I mean, you guys talk all the time about, um, you know, the broader issues in the Chinese economy, broader issues in the Chinese property market. And so some of that is is affecting demand. What has been really interesting is the way that some of those big luxury goods groups, which became really reliant on that Chinese demand, have managed to kind of redirection themselves back to the US and back to Europe and, and back to those other markets um, that they've, they've had to pull back from the Chinese market simply because no one can get in there and no one can get out, it turns out. Um, so uh, they have reorientated themselves really well and um, and while the, some of the groups, um, you know, they've, they've dropped off a little bit in demand, depending on the brand, um, most of them have actually held up pretty well considering uh, considering the, the change in, in Chinese demand. Mm. And and the other place for demand, and I, and I don't know, I've got absolutely no idea how to measure this, um, but, you know, I, I can certainly measure it by anecdote in terms of the, yep. the, the crypto bros or whatever, in terms of, you go, you know, crypto ran up to 60,000 or whatever, and, and, you know, if you looked at Instagram feeds, I think uh, you know luxury goods and and all that type of stuff that people were posting. You know, just sold my Bitcoin and bought whatever. Um, uh, I'm I'm assuming that's another that's that's another place that's going to be dampening in terms of demand. But um, but it's yeah, as I said, I just I've got no idea about the stats other than anecdotes. Yeah, well, I I, I I'm I'm in a similar position. Um, there are definitely some brands of choice. Um, so brands like Balenciaga, brands like um, Gucci, Off-White, Givenchy, they are very big with that crowd. What is interesting, though, is that those brands tend to sit within larger groups. So it, it's a bit difficult to work out what the actual uh, reduction is because it's not like those brands are standalone and you can see that um, 
you can see that in share prices or you can, they, they generally sit in those bigger groups. Um, but uh, the, the other one that is interesting is the, the luxury goods brands that went into things like NFTs and now that, you know, they were super hyped for a while and now, you know, there's no interest really um, in luxury goods NFTs. So I think Gucci was one that, that went there and Balenciaga was another. Um, but the, those brands were definitely uh, the brands of choice uh, for that group, that cohort. Um, and we definitely hear a lot less um, a lot less of that connection or a lot less of that promotion and hype that, that there was, you know, at least, you know, 12 months ago and more. Mm. Yes. So, okay. And so... In terms of if you were going to pick a so so there's obviously a number of listed big listed companies that that, that we and, and you know lots of other people look at. Uh, it sounds as if from from what you're saying is you, the exclusive end is is probably still the place to be rather than the you know I guess if you, if you start at the uh, Hermes level and that's sort of like very very exclusive and then as you work your way down through the brands you get some brands that are sort of a bit more um, I guess the borderline yes they're they're making more affordable products. Um, yeah. And so I guess what you're saying is it sounds like the, the exclusive end is, is still the place to be? Yeah, it really is. And and if you look at um, if you you look at each of those kind of groups over a period of time, at least that three years, all of them seem to to peak and have their high point uh, at the end of twenty twenty one, which I think is more broadly in line with the rest of the market. Um, but some of those have come off uh, a bit more sharply than others, and others have held up. So you've seen, um, say, curing has come off a little bit more. Um, that there has, um, and and I did I did this last time, but it's it's quite relevant. That has brands like um, Balenciaga, Bottega Veneta, Gucci, Alexander McQueen, and Yves Saint Laurent. They they've definitely come off a fair bit since their high. Um, Moncler has come off a bit as well. Um, but what I find really interesting about Moncler is they've now become a much broader offering than, than what they were two, three and four years ago. Um, so I'm really interested to see what they do going forward um, because they're not just, you know, puffer jackets anymore. They, they've definitely broadened, broadened their offering and you can find them a lot more readily now um, either um, in store or online on things like My Teresa and that sort of thing. So the, the the ability to purchase Moncler has become a lot, uh, a lot easier. I think LVMH is still the standout. They are slightly down from December 2021, but the, but but hardly at all. Like there's been a bit of up and down movement, but they have held really well. And what I think is so great about LVMH is they have a very um, high level um, of luxury offering, but it's very broad. So you can buy a Louis Vuitton, you can buy a yacht, you can buy Tiffany & Co, you can buy Dom Perignon, you can buy Belvedere. So they've just got this really broad luxury offering that really hits at that top level, but it's like not only is it the top level, but we've got everything for you. And so I think that they have done a really good job there in having a great breadth of offering, um, but they're, they're always hitting the same market and that market is still purchasing. Um, they do have some kind of, um, I'll say lower level, but it's not it's not lower level luxury goods, um, but it's more say, you know, within Louis Vuitton, you can still buy something at $1,000 
right? Mm. I mean, you can also spend 50000 if you want, but you still can buy something at $1,000. So there is still some lower-level entry point um, into those brands, but they have this this um, this really brilliant offering that I think um, is, is, is so well-supported and that I, I think that, that that's why they've continued to do really well, even though some of the others have come off. Um, similarly to your, well, actually, I'll, I'll pull you up quickly on that one. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that is one in our portfolio, and we did buy it at a cheaper levels in in so it, it fell a fair bit into into June, and yeah, we managed to pick yes. up some and and um, so and I think it's probably it's safe to say they're they're very much a um, a manager of brands now as opposed to like they, I guess what I'm saying is if some of them like Montclair, for example, as you said, you know, really started with puffer jackets and and not not a lot else. And now they're trying to expand. Whereas I think LVMH has got a, a pretty long history of buying um, other other quality, other um, you know family-owned uh, luxury goods, and then then integrating it into the system and and selling it down the down the pipeline. Yeah, they absolutely do. And and because um, you have that that mindset, that luxury mindset, that's what keeps um, that's what keeps the standard. You know. Everything there is really good. It's really well managed. Great customer service, and so you're quite right. It it has become this um, this great little home for all of these excellent brands, and and some of them are a lot smaller than than something like Louis Vuitton or Hennessy. Um, but there is this understanding that the business is run a certain way, and um, and while they do have the occasional hiccup, they're not there just totally driving at cost reduction mm. you know they're not trying to you know take the edges off and make things cheap like they understand that they have a clientele that expect a certain kind of product and they put forward that product um in such a way that well this is the price you pay for it but 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 this is the standard and, and this is the quality that you get with it. And I think that that makes a real difference compared to some, you know, more middle-level brands which are definitely more focused on um, keeping margins up and keeping costs down. Excellent. And um, yeah, before while we're talking, I'm just aware as well, we're, we're sort of, we are running a little bit of time, so there's a couple of things I just want to touch on as well. Um, so second-hand market, you know, obviously there's, well, actually, actually for anyone who's, who doesn't closely follow the whole Kanye West um, uh, episode? Um, so basically, uh, maybe I'll summarise it quickly, and then you can. I'll, I'll let you say what you think in terms of the what it's done to secondhand goods. So you know, he basically um, a, a partnership with Adidas, um, selling shoes which were effectively that uh, selling sh shoes as a luxury item where um, they would underprice. Under sorry, not produce enough shoes for, to meet the demand and then the shoes would 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 then sell on the secondhand market at much higher levels and um and, and then attract more interest and so it's almost a um you know, you know deliberately producing not enough in order to, to attract interest and then he's uh, blown up with a number of anti-semitic problems and been kicked out of adidas and trying to go elsewhere and hasn't been able to get into it um you know i, I guess your thoughts on what that means for the secondhand market whether there's any changes to 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 the the exclusivity thoughts, and I don't know. I guess it just seems like a seems like a relatively big change to that. Um, certainly, the shoe side of that. Yeah, it is, and and I I don't think it's really come out in the wash yet. I think this is going to be more of a a middle term sort of thing. So, um, when something 
has um, small production but constant production, that there really keeps the, the second-hand market buoyant. Um, and, and Hermes is a great example of that. But once you stop producing something, after a while people forget about it and they move on to the next cool thing. Mm. And so what will be interesting to see is do people just forget about Yeezys all of a sudden because they're no longer produced and someone else is producing some other newfangled uh cool luxury good that all the kids are wearing um or does it become a bit of a collector's item and i'm not sure what the answer to that is Mm. we have seen other designers kind of fall foul of the pr um of pr issues like that we saw dolce gabbana fall out with the chinese market for a short period of time um over comments that were or, or an ad that was considered to be a bit racist and and obviously john galliano to go and spend a little bit of time on the bench um, after some anti-Semitic comments, which he made, um, but but he he his business still continues. Um, so it will be interesting to see how long the fallout is. Um, but I but personally, I think you know unless there is some kind of um, uh, effort that keeps Yeezy going as as some kind of old school collector's item. Um, I think if it is no longer produced, that everyone will eventually forget about it. Mm. And I wonder as well. It's probably for me. There's there's probably more risk if you're saying, um, you know, I guess what I'm saying. If you're a luxury handbag maker and your founder is 80 years old and has made some unsavory comments, maybe a lot of your clientele is quite old as well and doesn't yeah. might not care as much. Whereas if you're a shoemaker and most of your clientele is in the whatever 30 to 50, 30 to 40 range. Um, or the younger, sorry, I guess, 20 to 40-year range, then maybe you're actually – there's potential for more backlash, I guess, in terms of um, yeah, people deciding not to buy as a as – a, as, a, um, as a, I don't know. A, a political point. Political point, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think that's – I think that's, that's a really fair um, – that's a really fair observation. Um, older people too don't tend to be boycotters, mm. you know, or they can separate politics from a or they, they're a bit more, um, they're not that they don't care, but they tend to be a bit more sanguine about those sorts of things. The younger generation is definitely a bit more righteous about those sort of things. And, you know, they won't eat meat and, you know, they won't do certain things to make, um, for, you know, from a political values point. So that's, mm. that's entirely possible and that they are more likely um, to boycott. Um, yeah, so I think I think that's valid. I, but I think it'll be – I don't think it's finished playing out yet. I think we can have this conversation in another six months' time or another 12 months' time and I think a bit more would have gone through the wash. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a sneaker guy myself, but I know, I know lots of them. And so I just, I just don't know where that, you know, maybe that just means that Nike's, the old, old school Nikes go up more in value and, and, uh, but, but yeah, it's a tough one. Um, the other one actually, the other thought I had on this was the, the whole pandemic idea is, do you think the pandemic might have created more people who are interested in this part of the market? Like, it's, it's hard to say. I sort of feel, on one hand, I go, well, you know, there's, I feel like there's a lot of people who had a bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a come, a bit of a reflection on what they're doing and saying, no, you know what, I want to go to a less consumption and I'll live live in the country more and I'll work less and I'll, you know, maybe, you know, I won't be buying those brands. But on the flip side, you know, there's a lot more people left at home buying goods and 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 cruising Instagram and and spare time on their hands and, and nowhere to spend it. And so maybe they've 
maybe they've now entered the luxury market buyers who wouldn't have otherwise been that way. I don't know what your thoughts are on on sort of the pros and cons yeah. for the pandemic. Oh, look, it definitely, I guess anyone who likes this sort of stuff will tell you it's a slippery slope, right? And once you get a liking for this sort of stuff, it's very difficult to back out, right? Mm. It's, you know, it, not that it becomes an addiction or anything like that, but, you you know, once you once you um, get an appreciation for the finer things in life, you, you do get a little bit attached to them. Um, I think there are some people who um, do have that kind of come-to-Jesus moment and realise, well, this is just stuff and it's not that important and I'm going to go and in, in, instead of spending my money on luxury goods, I'm going to save it for holidays with my family because that's the most important thing or we're going to do a road trip around the east coast of Australia or whatever. So I think that there is definitely some of that. Um, and I also think now that people can travel, um, you know, money that they may have previously spent on luxury goods during the pandemic, um, they will spend on other things like travel. Um, but, you know, there, there will always be that, that, part of the luxury market where um, it's just the thing that people do. Um, mm, these are people absolutely. that don't have to worry about paying their power bills, so they will they will just, it'll be business as usual. Um, but um, it, we definitely saw just such a profound change of behaviour and um, I just thought it was, it was fascinating to watch it right up close, Damien. It was fascinating to watch it right up close. Um, but... Look, again, I, I would love to revisit this in, in six to 12 months' time to see if there is any sort of pandemic hangover and how many people are selling, you know, 20 pairs of $1,500 shoes that they bought where the, the soles are still squeaky clean that they've never worn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I'd definitely love to love to talk again. Um, yep. I've got to actually wind up, Sam. I don't know if you – but maybe – Yeah, well – We'll just we'll just quickly uh, do the question of the week. So this is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. The question for this week is: Which sector is the canary in the coal mine? Uh, so feel free to post your thoughts this and engage with us. For insolvencies, yeah. Which sector should we be watching most closely? Yeah. Yes. Um, I think um, I think retail. Uh, I think retail is probably the one to watch going forward. I think it'll be really interesting to see um, if we get a few more interest rate rises and people got a bit more pressure on mortgages, uh, a bit more pressure on, um, you know, inflation, grocery bills, all of that sort of thing. I think that that there will really turn the tap on um I'll turn the tap off, I suppose, on that discretionary spending. Yeah, uh, things like rideshare, things like uh, hospitality, things like retail. And and the thing is, interest rates going up, it takes a while for them firstly to to make their way into your mortgage payments and then it, it takes a little bit longer until it starts affecting your behaviour, um, whether you've got a bit of savings to prop you up or, or, or whatever. It does take a little while to wash through the economy. So I think uh, the retail sector, particularly that bricks and mortar retail sector, um, I think that there is a place to watch uh, going forward. Um, and on the construction front, I think there's probably still a bit more to play out there. We've definitely seen new home approvals um, drop in WA. 
I'm not, I'm not sure about the rest of the country, but what will be really interesting to see is going forward whether uh, the construction sector and builders are still getting that cash flow coming into their businesses if, if you start to see a bit of a, um, a, a decrease in demand. Mm, absolutely. Now, Caroline, 30 seconds. Um, do you want to just let yep. people know where they can find your stuff? Okay, so if you if you want to find me, if you if you want to handbag authenticated, www.luxuryauthentication.com.au. Um, if you would like to buy a handbag, www.thedailylux.com.au. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Caro DeRusso. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate you coming on again. And I'm going to have no to worries. cut here, but I'm, I'm, I will switch across to Sam. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thanks. We'll speak soon. Thanks, guys. Uh, so we do welcome your feedback on this podcast, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. Uh, if you do have any ideas, please drop it in the comments section below or send us an email at contact at nucleuswealth.com. Just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, uh, please go to nucleuswealth.com forward slash contact and you can book a call with myself. Don't forget to like the video now. And if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you can please share it with them. If you'd like to see more of our previous episodes and content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content or subscribe on our homepage for our weekly Nucleus news and investment insights. Uh, we do put out a lot of articles and videos in addition to this podcast, so you can check it out there. And of course, you can follow us on all social media. So for myself, Damien, Caroline, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.